0: Okay, Revelation chapter 6, but we're really not even going to touch much on it because this is part 7. I got to hand it to you guys who have stuck with us, especially this crew here. It's baking outside. We're in a warehouse. Uh, We're studying Revelation. We're in part 7 of chapter 6, and they're hanging with it. Uh, And just to let you know, for your planning, those of you who are at home and watch, on August 20th, a Sunday, we used to have something called Heart in the Park. Some of you remember that, we used to do open water baptisms. Well, we're gonna have an part in the Parking Lot and uh, we're gonna be doing open water baptisms here. We do them once a year, twice, uh, for anybody who wants to uh, be baptized and anyone can baptize you here uh, if you want to participate in that. And then we're gonna have a barbecue as well and uh, some other things. So. August 20th, keep that in your... uh, That was applause from Patrick, by the way. All right, so we are in uh, Matthew 24. Peter, James, John, and Andrew have come to the Lord. They've asked him three questions. Lord, you've talked about all this destruction. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of this age? King James Version says the end of the world. It does that throughout but it's translated the end of this age. We recall that we paused in Revelation six with the opening of the sixth seal and and we came over to Matthew 24 to understand the sixth seal. So just as a quick reiteration, uh, chapter six, verse 12 of Revelation says, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs, when she is shaking of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the captains, Uh, the chief captains, every man hid themselves, every bondman hid themselves in the dens and rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Much of the verbiage that is used there in the sixth seal opening and reading of it is comparable to what Jesus says to Matthew, I mean, Peter, James, John, and Andrew there on the Mount of Olives when they say, when will these things be? What's the sign of thy coming? And the end of this age. So we left off reading in Matthew 24 at verse 28 where Jesus says, for wheresoever the carcasses, there will be the eagles gathered together. Last week, we covered that. So let's read verse 29 of Matthew 24, where Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. So we obviously can't help but note that there are parallels to Jesus' words And how he describes the end of all things and what it says in the sixth seal when it is open. Now, the people who are called futurists, and there may be some among you, they really love this passage because they will say, When has there ever been a time in the history of the world when the sun was darkened, the moon didn't give light, the stars fell from heaven, and the powers of the heavens themselves, the powers of the heavens were shaken? When did that occur? Before explaining this verse, I want you to hear the following passage and I want you to ask yourself a question. Don't try to find it. Don't use your computer to try to find the passage. I want you to tell me what it is describing, what period of time, you ready? For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. That's a quote from scripture. What's this passage describing? Well, many people would say, well, that's an end time passage. But actually, it's found in Isaiah 13, and it's Isaiah's description of the destruction of Babylon. I read that to you because I want you to understand the figurative sense the Hebrews spoke and wrote. And Isaiah says, speaking of Babylon and its destruction, that the stars of heaven and the constellation wouldn't give their light, the sun would be darkened, all of the same language, and it's to describe something that was just a a, a geographically limited event. It's because the Jews talk in those ways. So we have to be very careful not to use this flowery language of the Jews and and apply it to literalism, all right? Uh, How about another one, ready? Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Well, that's not as picturesque, but it's describing, again, Isaiah, the destruction of Tyre. And that's found in Isaiah 24, 23. Again, we read that well before uh, Jesus is talking to his apostles on the Mount of Olives about the end of all things. But it's the same kind of language that is used and it describes an event that has taken place. One more, check this one out, listen to it. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree, end quote. Where is this written? What is it describing? The end of the world, right? I mean, if all the heavens are dissolved, it has to be talking about the end of everything. No, it's the slaughter of Bozrah and Edomia written in Isaiah 34.4. So again, we know that when Bozrah and Edomia were destroyed, that this was picturesque language to say that the heavens would were dissolved and that the heavens were rolled together as a scroll and that the host of heaven would fall down. But it certainly did not happen literally when Edomia and Basra were destroyed. So I'm just trying to show you picturesque language that is used in the book of Revelation and by Jesus in Matthew 24. So um, I also mention them to show that while they sound really significant, when we read in scripture that the heavens will be rolled together as a scroll, It causes us, and I've heard so many really good preachers and teachers of the Lord say things like, what we do doesn't even matter. If you write a great poem or a great book or you've done a great thing here on this earth and there's there's libraries named after you, who cares because all of it's gonna be dissolved, wrapped up like a scroll and disappear. They are taking the words literally when in reality, they aren't literal. Um, but they sound like geographically relevant and world shattering events. So when, one other question is, when was the last time you have heard of the destruction of Basra and Idumea? When were you at the, uh, I said Einstein's, when were you at the um, uh, Starbucks, if you go there, 7-Eleven, And people are around there going, man, can you believe the destruction of Basra and Edomedia? It was just hellacious. I just, they're still talking about it today, right? Well, people say that's what would have happened if these things fell upon Jerusalem in this way that everybody would still be talking about it. But they did happen in the Old Testament and no one is still talking about it. No one talks about this apocalyptic stuff because it doesn't happen in the literal way that we expect. So the point is Hebrew writers were renowned for describing God's visiting hand of judgment in terms that are super descriptive and extremely literary and to apply them to our world today as literal is just foolishness in my estimation. So here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is simply following suit since he authored the words to Isaiah and he spoke them and Isaiah wrote them. He's speaking in the same language that those of the house of Israel would understand and and his apostles would understand that type of verbiage. The imagery Jesus used to answer his disciples' questions shouldn't be taken any more literally than you would take Isaiah 34.4, where he says the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars. But we could say it's an inexpressible calamity is about to fall. Something that would be as if the stars fell from the sky. A heart sick teenager who loses his girlfriend, uh, if he were a Jew might uh, say that the, 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 my world was destroyed. That's the kind of thing that we are talking about. So the destruction is gonna be great and that's how, the way, that's how he would say it. Luke's account of Jesus' words adds that there would be a distress of nations. So again, the futurist view is we're going to have distress of nations. And every time there is distress of nations, which is all the time and has been ever since the world's existed, there is a distress among warlike nations and nations that can communicate with each other. Um, We think it's the end. But in actuality, again, it's the distress of ethnicities. And he says there will be distress of ethnicities with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, Jesus says, right? So again, all figures of speech in my estimation describing the great and terrible thing that is going to come within a generation upon Jerusalem uh, using Hebraic language. So lines like roaring of the waves of the sea suggest atonement and affliction and uh, ang- perplexity of the people means anxiety. They're, they're, they're perplexed, they don't understand. They don't know how to escape, they don't know what to do. For several hundred of years, uh, our futurist brothers and sisters have taken these very descriptive Hebraic tools and used them to describe for centuries, actual events, look for them to happen, as I've already said here, and it's gotten us to believe that it's still in our future. But um, really unfair when Jesus said it would happen within a generation. So when Isaiah spoke about these calamities happening in the stars and the heavens, about the destruction of people and places in his day, Jesus spoke in the same language of a destruction that was going to occur in their day. Now, as a side note, I just want to say that the histor- his, his, histor- historicist view of Revelation which says these are themes that are constantly repeating themselves. I think there is merit to that. So just because I believe these things were fulfilled and the wrapping up of that age has occurred does not mean that I don't believe these themes that we read about aren't still happening in our world. For instance, when it talks about the love of man growing cold, I see that going on around us uh, constantly still today. And when we see some of the things that can happen in these opening of these seals, I see much of them being possible as a cycle of what happens through events. We use Hiroshima as an example when they dropped the bomb that there were so many things that fit the description of Revelation that you could say, that's one of the cycles that happens through humanity. I just am trying to suggest that this was the wrapping up of the biblical age with Jesus coming to sign that, the, seal that age up, it's overdone and it's captured there. Will some of these things still happen to us? I think, personally, I think they do. Other people might say, absolutely not. But I seem to see them all around us still. Moving on, Jesus says, those who believe in a worldwide second coming often quote the next verse, verse 30 in Matthew 24, where Jesus says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, Notice that it says in heaven there. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. So twice in there, we are told how he is coming. He's coming with the clouds in heaven. And so it's gonna be a a visual thing for people, spiritually or physically, we don't know, who are looking for him to arrive. In the clouds of heaven, most futurists dismiss this verse, uh, take this verse and say, you can't dismiss it. People did not see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. It hasn't happened. If they did, then we would have a record of it by everybody who was here saying, Jesus came and took his church, right? This is proof that Jesus hasn't come because it describes something that has not happened and we haven't heard about it, comes the claim. Those who read the NIV translation of the Bible, maybe at some of you, should examine their Bibles closely relative to this verse. Why? Because in the NIV, there's a footnote and it says after the line, uh, all the peoples of the earth, the footnote says all the tribes of the land. And that is speaking directly to the 12 tribes of Israel, anyone who's part of that. All the tribes of that land would witness what was coming in the clouds if they were looking, which is what Hebrew says. Only those who are looking for him would see him. Those who are not looking for him would not know or see him in any way. Additionally, the Greek word translated earth in Matthew 24, 30, once again is Gehei, it is not cosmos. And so it isn't a global term that everybody on earth is going to see it, but only those who are in the Gehei, the local vicinity or area. So looking at the context, the interpretation is best applied to the nation of Israel alone. If you're interested in reading more about how the ancient Hebrews language said and and conveyed things, preteristarchive.com, preteristarchive.com. You can get any response to your questions which are limitless almost, on this idea. So check that out. Now, at verse 30, I believe Jesus begins to answer the second question the apostles asked, which was, what is the sign of thy coming? Okay, the first question is, when will these things be? What is the sign of thy coming and the end of this age? So I think at verse 30, Jesus begins to answer their second question, what is the sign of your coming? And it says, and then because he's given them all the stuff that is gonna happen. And he says, and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth of the Gehei mourn, and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Then he adds, using Hebraic language, of course, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, while verse 31 sounds even more futuristic than verse 32, and it's a cosmic wide from one end of heaven to the other, this is going to happen. We know from previous studies that the word angelos in the Greek, it's where we get angel, means any kind of messenger. And angelos means It can be a messenger that's a man or a woman. It can be an insect. It can be the Bible. It can be disease. It can be a wind. All of those can be angelases. Even though we give them to the heavenly creations, they can be any messenger God employs to send a message. If we looked at the Septuagint translation of Moses and his uh, God sending plagues into Egypt, those plagues that were sent, I am willing to bet, and I haven't checked it, are pro- it's probably Angelos. They were, uh, the Greek translation would be, they were messengers that were sent. Biblically speaking, it most commonly refers to the race of heavenly beings, right? More exalted than man uh, who are employed by God to work among us, but in and of these verses, this verse might refer to the angelic deliverance granted to his believers in the midst of the tragedies that are going on in Jerusalem. I say this in part because of the mention of the trump sounding. To a Jew, a trump sounding was a familiar thing to them historically that said, do, do, do gather together in assemblies. You know, that the trump sounding was a call for a Jew and it initialed them to come together. So in Leviticus 25.9 and Numbers 10.2 and Judges 3.27, We have evidence for when a trump is sounded that the groups would come together, gather together. So when Jesus tells Peter, James, John, and Andrew, hey, the son of man, you're gonna hear the trump sound, he's saying this is the gathering together of his church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. The angels are coming. The son of man is coming riding in the clouds. He's coming to gather up his believers of that age. So for Jesus to say that to these men, He gives a recognizable Old Testament picture of what they could look for, the elect being gathered together. I interpret his words to mean that when he comes, angels will arrive and gather the elect and help escort them to safety. In this case, they either went to a place called Pella or they were raptured up. I'm of the opinion of that day, they were taken up. Others are of the opinion that they all escaped to a place called Pella. And, and that gives credence to the idea that Jesus is going to return again, or at least a second time, and is going to save that church that started, continued at Pella, and goes out till today. So you're, you have to decide how you'll see it. I'm personally convinced, I bet my bottom dollar, uh, that this stuff has all happened, uh, and that we aren't waiting for it to occur now. However, the last two lines of the verse make my interpretation difficult for people to believe, because Jesus says, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when Jesus says the four winds, the Jews describe the earth as quartered in four parts: north, east, south, and west, right? And so it's, they often express the earth, the world, or geographies as four in quarters. So we could take it literally that Jesus is saying from the north, east, south, and west of the world, all believers that have been scattered will be called by the trumpet to come together. And that makes some historical, uh, um, that makes some sense when we read it. Uh, But we also could see it as referring to the area and, since Jerusalem's gonna be wiped out, the the trumpet is sounded, he comes riding in the clouds, all the signs that he's been talking about have occurred, and it's the four winds of that area being called together. That other line is from one end of heaven to another, really it's just another way of saying from every direction. But again, you wanna be a literalist, then you can say it has to happen from the whole, every place, and go from there. But listen to the passage again and hear the words the Lord chooses. Try to hear them relative to Jesus describing the destruction of Jerusalem and how Christian believers would be saved from its ravages. See if you can apply this literary, his literary device to the words he says. You ready? He says, and they shall gather together his elect, talking about the angels from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. If you understand it in a geographical uh, locale, it works. But admittedly, it can also work for a wide worldwide. It's up to you. The primary sense and purpose of Jesus saying these words was in response to the disciples' question. And this can't be lost. All right. At this point, Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree. Right here in the Mount of Olives, he teaches these four apostles a parable in relation to the three questions asked. And he says... Now, Peter, James, John, Andrew, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. So likewise you, Peter, James, John, Andrew, when you shall see these things, know that it is near even at the doors. So I believe he's talking about his, res- his return. You'll know that it is near even at the doors. When you shall see the things I've been talking about, when you, Peter, James, and John, will see the things I'm talking about, you'll know that the end is near even at the doors. In the parable or illustration, Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree. He tells them sitting here with him to learn to apply the parable to all he has said. He doesn't say to them, Peter, James, John, Andrew, my coming will be for them like this. And when they shall see these things, he tells them when you shall see, learn the parable of the fig tree. Just as when you could look at a fig tree and its leaves, you could know that summer is near. Likewise, he tells them, when they begin to see these signs come to pass, they know that the end is not only near, it's at the door's. It's gonna happen. And you know if you've been with us long enough, you know that we have beat this to death on what all the apostles have said about the same thing. So what would be at the doors? Everything the apostles had been asking him about. The wrapping up of all these things, his return and the end of that age. When they saw the signs, the judgment of Judah would be near. It would be at the door. The desolation of Judah was gonna be near, it was at the door. The destruction of the grand and glorious temple uh, was near, it would be even at the door. Did the destruction of Judah occur? Did the destruction of the temple occur? At the door, absolutely 70 AD. How was the destruction of Judah? How did that take place? By the destruction of the genealogies. Thank you. Are the ladies playing tricks today? Uh, the, The end of the covenant age was near. The return of Jesus, his second coming was near. So this brings us to the verse, which there's no getting around. You ready? Matthew 24, 34. If you remember any passage from Jesus talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, remember this passage. This is the one. Verily, whenever Jesus says that, it's amen in the English. Amene, amene, it means listen, this is it. You ready? Peter, James, John. This generation shall not pass till all these things shall be fulfilled. All the things he has said, this generation won't pass until all of it has been fulfilled. The Greek word for generation is genia, and it means an age. 40 years as we have discussed here. It's a biblical age of 40, 41, 39, somewhere in their years. Some people have tried to say that generation means a people group. It's a generation of people like the Jews. But the Greek word for this type of generation is genos. And Second Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen generation. That's speaking of a people group. The type of generation used here is a period of time. This generation, this period of time will not pass. Jesus said this around 30 AD, a generation's around 40 years. 70 AD, the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed, millions killed. Uh, All the things he said are coming to pass as we've read about. So how do you explain Matthew 24, 34 as believers if it didn't happen? Uh, I would suggest that the word can be trusted. I would suggest that Jesus' words Can be trusted. I would suggest that when the apostles, Apostle John said, hey, it's at hand, that Paul said it's coming, that Peter says it's here. When they said that, they were not wrong. Do you know what people say today? They say, we admit that the apostles were under the impression that the time was near and it was at hand, but they were wrong. That's what they say. And if the apostles were wrong, then I don't know why we study this book at all because that, fit, it, that made its way into the scripture and if they said, it's happening now, I trust it. I believe it. When Jesus said within a generation, all these things will come to pass, I trust him. I do not trust our interpretation of it. I entrust what he says. If you do that, you're far safer than if you take the words and then you mix them around to fit what you wanna believe. So, Futurists can't agree to that stance. They have to say Jesus was wrong, or generation does not mean generation. And in either case, they have twisted the clear meaning to to suit their, their belief in this area. Now, this isn't a hill to die on. So people can mess this up all day and night, and I mess it up day and night, and we're still believers. We are saved by grace through faith. Nothing on the on the report says you are saved by your view of the end times. Okay, so understand that. But we try to say what scripture says and teach it, and that's what I think it says. Even the great Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, who, uh, you know, you can't help but love his writings and his books and his wit and his uh, insights to scripture. Uh, typically, he provides reasonable defenses of the Christian faith, but in this one st- instance... He, he, he choked, he, he, he stood on some sketchy ground. Let me give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Okay, he's speaking to what skeptics could say to us in the beginning of this quote. So C.S. Lewis talking about what skeptics could say to people who trust the Bible. He says, say what you like. We shall be told by some critics, he says, the apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proven to be false. Our critics will say the apocalyptic ideas of the apostles, even of Jesus, have been false. That's what our critics will say. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said, in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. Now that's C.S. Lewis citing what our critics would say about us. And, and, and then at this point, he stops in his narrative and he stops giving voice to what the critics say to us and he adds his own comments. And this is his words. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. I just, Love you, C.S. Lewis. That's the most embarrassing thing you've ever written because the Lord was right, history proves he was right, The apostles were correct, and your understanding of it was just off. He goes on, yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it come the statement, but of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son but the father. He goes on, the one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance grow side by side. To this, the skeptic may reply, if Jesus incorrectly predicted his return within the contemporaneous generation, but actually did not know that he was going to return within that time frame, then why did he so confidently assert that all of the words he had just spoken would come to pass in Matthew 24, 35? He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. What's, so what, what he's saying is, He doesn't understand how to defend this most embarrassing passage that we're reading right now, that Jesus said within a generation, all of this is gonna happen. And he says, and then the very next words, he says, heaven and earth are gonna pass away. That's Hebraic language, by the way. Heaven and earth will pass away. We read that Hebraic language earlier in the Old Testament by Isaiah. Well, Jesus, when he said that, he wasn't saying literally, he was saying the economies of heaven and earth are gonna pass away, but his words, about the coming within a generation. They're not passing away. So we have, if you can see it, we have a major standoff with this passage, major. So much so that C.S. Lewis even erred on the side of ignorance and said, it's just the most embarrassing thing we've ever read. Uh, And then he says, I'll wrap this up. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible, uh, and we allow all of ourselves, C.S. Lewis, uh, all of ourselves, myself, everybody, to make mistakes. He wasn't above making them. Uh, I don't judge him, love his heart and works for God, but to call the passage the most embarrassing scripture was an error. The phrase is not embarrassing in the least if you read the Bible contextually, but I gotta tell you something. If you are a futurist, or really if you're an idealist and possibly a historicist, but if you are definitely a futurist, you are agreeing with C.S. Lewis here. You are saying that Jesus didn't know and he made a mistake. If you look at the Greek meaning of generation and you are saying the apostles were under the impression he was coming back, but they were wrong too. And that is one of the failures, not salvation losses, Well, one of the failures of the futuristic position, because it's a mistake. Bringing more reason to the topic, in 1993, some of you know a man, he's very well known in Christian academia, and his name is R.C. Sproul. He has radio programs, he's a a Calvinist, he's very intellectual, he speaks on Calvinism. But speaking about that phrase of Jesus this generation, R.C. Sproul said this, Maybe some church fathers made a mistake. Maybe our favorite theologians have made mistakes. I can abide with that. I can't abide with Jesus being a false prophet because if I am to understand that Jesus is a false prophet, my faith is in vain. I mean, that's how big of a standoff that passage is. And you really can't get around it unless you do a song and dance so that you can keep your delusion alive instead of what it actually says. So looking at the words of Jesus here, uh, he gives to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. We are left with one of three choices, maybe more. He was speaking to them, and he was speaking to what would exist again for us at another time, another coming. Many people believe that. Yes, he came to Israel, to Jerusalem. Yes, all this happened but he's coming again to us. And that's one way some people explain it. Uh, I don't see that in scripture, this third coming bit, but some people hang on that. Or he was speaking to them only and he was absolutely correct in what he said. Or he was speaking to them only and he was wrong. You decide how you're going to read that. If you read that he was speaking correctly, what he said meant what he said and he was right, You are not a futurist. You can't be. So we've already covered the meaning of generation, so I'm not gonna go into it. Um, Jesus came, all he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 21 and 23, to his apostles about the temple coming to an end in Matthew 23, and all he has described in the first 33 verses of Matthew 24, have been fulfilled, like it or not. That's what he said would happen. Uh, like it or not, okay? So, then resorting to more figurative language, the Lord delivers another line that is frequently used to justify all sorts of things. But in context, uh, we have to under, understand what he meant, by heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. But I'm gonna pause here just for a second. In the face of this revelation for some of you, and a redundancy for others, um, People say, if Jesus isn't coming back to save us from this place, and he hasn't come back to save us from this place for nearly 2,000 years, what do I have to look forward to as a believer? I don't get it. And it literally becomes a thing where they lose hope. They don't see the purpose of being a Christian if they don't have the hope that he's coming back to rapture his church, take up his believers and destroy and punish the rest of the world? I understand this question to some extent, but I have to admit the full emotional brunt of it escapes me. Uh, And the reason might be because I was never exposed for any length of time to hyper end time teaching, even though I sat under Chuck Smith and Chuck Smith uh, was a huge proponent of futuristic ideas. In fact, just to let you know, I went through the Bible three times entirely, beginning to end through audio tapes of Chuck Smith, uh, who I love dearly, and he's gone now, he's with the Lord. But, uh, and I would hear him say, and tapes that were taped in 1968 or 69, it's gotta be within the next eight months. you know, And you hear the crowd, ooh. And then in 74, it's gotta be within the year. And then in in, in 78 or 79 or whatever, it's gotta be within the next year. I mean, look around. And that's what the futurist position does to people. Even Chuck Smith, the great preacher, uh, love the man was was off on that one. So I've always maintained that my personal view that it'd be better to be ready to meet him in your Christian walk always. That the people who died yesterday who are Christians didn't get to experience a rapture of the church and, or a second coming, but they died. And they, something has happened to them. I suggest from scripture, we won't go into it, that they were raptured at that point, taken up to heaven, absent with the body, present with the Lord, that they received their resurrected body by God as Jesus has had the victory over all things. And they're living in bliss. And those who have received a body uh, for damnation because that's what the Lord has willed according to their will and ways, that's it. And they are living in what their, their eternity will be. And uh, so that's how I see it relative. So when people say, what do I have to live for as a Christian, if there's not gonna be a second coming, you have to live for what everyone lives for in their life anyway. You live your life, you, you seek the Lord, you love your family, you experience the joys of this earth, you pass away. You get raptured, you're given a resurrected body, and it's fulfilled, it's done, and there it is. And the, the, the second coming has no real bearing on how you live your life as a Christian. So let me attempt to just explain a couple insights. Ask yourselves, what has the second coming rapture meant to believers who died physically in 71, 100, 250, 500, 1500, 1800, 2017? What has that meant to them? It's meant nothing. They may have been just stridently looking for it. It meant nothing to them, because they're with him. And so, when we really think about it, Jesus' expected return has a really limited, narrow application in the window of history. It was for that narrow application of his earthly life to the people of Judea and Jerusalem, to his brethren at that place and time, his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his return all within that window for them as scripture supports all the way through. But what he accomplished in that window for and through them, it comes over to us because they rejected him and we are so blessed to be recipients of the good news but it has a spiritual application now with him and the nation of Israel. It had a material application in a very small geographical window. Secondly, why are Christians always hoping that he will come back? Why? What is the spirit in us that says, I hope he comes back and wipes these guys out? I mean, really think about that. What kind of spirit is in us where we want him to come back and bring revenge upon the world around us. I can't wait for him to come. And I used to be sort of that way, so I get it. I've made the mistakes. And I know other people who are still that way. You know, I have a dear sister who told me she's going to believe in the rapture because she wants to be taken up. And as she's going, look at her neighbors and go, ha ha ha, I was right, you see. But that's not the spirit of Christianity. We, we don't want him to come back to wipe people out, to not give them every opportunity to receive him. We want our children and grandchildren who are still LDS and Catholic and non-believers and of this world to be able to receive him. So that's the heart of God to me. Not this, he's coming back, you better get ready or you're gonna get wiped out and I can't wait to see it. So finally, we have all the elements of his return, but our perspective has got to change on how it's applied. In other words, I'm convinced that Believers experience that personally being taken up at their death. And the second coming of Jesus then, they meet Jesus face to face then. They have their second coming. So we see these things and principles and types, archetypes of principles for us as we read them now, that we all are going to experience what happened here. Some will experience destruction. Some will experience salvation. Some will be caught and lifted up and saved from any afterlife punishment, things like that. So just as believers in Jerusalem were warned to prepare for his arrival, so are we. I'm speaking to the choir here. You guys are preparing your lives by hearing the word, considering what it says for your departure, for his arrival into your life, for your resurrection to occur. That's what this is all about, and that's why we do it. The physical material kingdom is complete, it's done, and all believers, I think, are all relating to him spiritually and not physically. So that was complete, completed in 70 AD. So, verily I say unto you, to the apostles with him right there, this generation not pass till all these things will be fulfilled. And then he adds that line, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Let me just talk about this passage and the contextual way of heaven and earth passing away in the last days from a reasonable biblical point of view. If we hear anything repeated over and over today among the churches, even among unbelieving communities, even Hollywood speaks of the end of the world, um, it refers to the last days. This must be the last days. This must be the apocalypse, right? Add in the speed and clarity with which technology keeps us in the loop of everything evil that is happening today and our fears and phobias of it being the last days seem sort of justified. Pandering to the fears keeps a majority of believers in the pews, keeps them coming to church, reading the signs of these times and filling the storehouses with grain, hoping to be prepared against the imminent tribulation that's going to befall them. When some of us have our foot on a banana peel and we're ready to go to the grave any minute, forget about second coming. I mean, our own lives are standing in jeopardy. So is heaven and earth ready to pass away, as Jesus said? Is heaven and earth going to pass away? Are these the last days uh, now? So in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, we read one of the prophecies about the last days. This is what Joel says, Uh, Joel 2, 28, 29. It shall come to pass afterwards that God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon my servants and upon my handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. If you jump to the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on a large group of people who had gathered. Peter stands up and it says, but Peter standing up, Acts chapter two, verses 14 through 21, of the 11, he lifted his voice and he said to them, you men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken. They thought the speakers and tongues of the different languages out there were drunk early in the day. These are not drunken as you suppose, seen as but the third hour of the day. But this, what you are seeing, Peter says, quoting from Joel, is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that it shall come to pass in the last days, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and all my servant, on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days, those last days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, all the same language used in Matthew 24, all the same language used in Revelation chapter six. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says all that to them on that day, tying what was happened to what was happening to them, the Holy Spirit fallen, to the last days, all right? Right then and there, if we jump to the first chapter of Hebrews, there's a passage you're gonna recognize. It says, God, in different times and in different ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. You see? And so contextually, we have the writer of Hebrews saying it's the last days. Now, what futurists do to explain that away is they say there's a gap. And that when God talks about, when the apostles are talking about being in the last days, they're skipping a gap. And we are living in that gap right now. And that we've lived all the fullness of it, but in there is this gap of 2,000 years, longer than from Adam to Jesus, almost, There's a gap, and then we're going to enter into the last days. But they were convinced, the writers to people then, that they were of the last days. We're talking about almost 2,000 years ago. I have to just interrupt this and look at uh, something that Carlos sent me. It's really quite interesting. Uh, It's a text, and it says this, and I think you'll find it funny. Sorry. Okay. It says, Balaam says in Numbers 24, 17, that he saw the Messiah, but he was far off. Jesus came 1,400 years later. So far off is 1,400 years to, Bala- to the, uh, Balaam when he speaks. 1,400 years is far off but soon is 2000 years, 2000 years can go by and it's still gonna happen soon. Daniel 12, uh, four, the angel tells Daniel to seal up the book of prophecy because the end is far off. Daniel receives a prophecy and, and he tells him, seal it up because the end is far away. 500 years later in Revelation twenty two ten, the angel tells John, don't seal the book up because the end is near. So Daniel, the angel, says the end is far off. 500 years go past, and then we see the end coming. But in Revelation, it says unseal because the end is near, and still we're uh, 1,500 years, and it hasn't happened. Do you see the idiocy of the way that we do math with biblical language? And I thought that was really insightful. So... Uh, John the beloved, little children, it is the last time. Wrote to them then. As you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists. Wrote to them then in his epistle, whereby you know that it is the last time that within a generation, Jesus signs and wonders that he tells John there on the Mount of Olives, we're coming around, and he says, filled with the spirit as an apostle. Hey, it's the last time. You've heard antichrists are coming, there's Antichrist everywhere. And let me tell you something, no, it's the last time. For us to take those passages and assign them to a different time and age uh, really is wrong. So, uh, by the way, that last time there means the last hora. It's the last, uh, that's Spanish, the last horas. That's, it's the last hour. We're, if it says the last days, it means a longer period of time. If it says the last years, we're talking about something, but the last hour means we are right on the precipice of that door opening and all ending. So here's the deal. They were in the last days of the physical economy of, of religion. And we too are in the last days of our respective lives. Every second, Patrick just gave us the unbelievable wisdom that the moment we're done, we begin dying. And so we are in the last days of our respective lives all the time. We don't know when it will come. We have signs, we develop a cough, we start to get achy, things like that. There's signs that we look forward to, but we're all in the last days. We will similarly be taken up or left behind to face salvation or destruction. And I mean the spiritual application to our lives would take years to properly articulate, but it is high time we take the idiocy out of reading the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and Joel and Daniel and Ezekiel and saying that it is speaking to this future event. What was the actual ending of these last days and hours in the New Testament? It was the passing away of the early church, which was established by the Lord and his apostles. The age of Moses and the prophets uh, was in the last stages of its life. It was fading away, as the writer of Hebrews says. It is vanishing as we speak. And uh, what was happening, the age of the old covenant was in its last days and was passing away. And it was making, it had to pass away according to the writer of Hebrews for the new covenant to step in and take place. It couldn't step in and take fully take place until the old covenant had vanished away. The writer of Hebrews says that as well. But now he, verse chapter 8, verse 6, Christ Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. He's talking to the Jews in Jesus' day. Jesus has ascended. He's promised to come back within a generation. And this is what God promised that those people. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first old, ready that which decayeth, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Meaning it's at the door, it's gonna go. We aren't waiting for that time still. It vanished away at the coming of Christ. So we'll continue more, and maybe we're going to get out of the chapter six, six seal uh, next week, maybe, um, and into the chapter um, seven, and then chapter eight is the seventh seal. Brother Larry, you have the microphone, yes. you have the prayer list, and he's going about to ask questions. Name and number, please. Uh, my name is Jonathan and I'm number two. (laughs) Um,
1: You know, from Phil Robertson, you know, the Duck Dynasty guys. Anyway, um, I have to say that uh, I was a futurist for quite a while, but after learning more of this perspective of the original audience and the Bible wasn't written in English to English speakers, uh, you kind of look at it from their perspective and I have to be, I have to say it, it's never made more sense yeah. than ever before, and I really appreciate Praise God. the message you're teaching. So the main benefit that I have found is that I have so much peace, yeah. knowing that we don't have to worry that we're going to see, you know, the Antichrist rise up into power and, you know. Everybody thought it was Bush, and they think it was Obama, and yeah, know, everyone tries to demonize our leaders, and and we know it's Trump, so right. I mean, <laughs> Trump. I think he's uh, I think he's got America's best interests at heart. Oh, that was a joke. I was, I was right. kidding. And that's you know all we can hope for in a leader, right? Yeah. In, in any country. So, um, yeah, I just want to say uh, to all those out there who are still worried because there's so many. Futurist out there, uh, there's just so much peace to be found in realizing that the Lord meant every word He said. Yeah. And uh, He never
0: lied. Amen. So, Amen. Glory to God. Thank you. Jonathan. Hi, I'm Patrick. Um,
1: I do have a question um, on the preterist view as well as the futurist, if you can answer this. If the preterist view is, is true, Let's just say, uh, uh, I'm not saying uh, it's not, I'm just, yeah. it could be. But then what about the millennial reign? And Christ comes, reigns a thousand years, the lamb
0: shall lie down with the lion, the young child shall play with, you know. Just really quickly, I'll just say yeah. that is spiritual language about the peace that his kingdom brings. That you and I being together in a car, the lamb and the lion, we are sharing a driving experience today, and we didn't kill each other. <laughs> and that is what he's saying, that in Christ, there will be a peace that will reign over his kingdom. In terms of the millennium, when we get to those passages, we'll explain it in the way the Hebrews would speak. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, brother. Or reverse, you're the lion and I was the lamb. Yeah, either way. Anything else? All right, guys. Thanks for putting up in the heat. Let's pray and get the heck out of Dodge. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to always, no matter what, stand with what you say. And what, that we won't believe you were wrong or your apostles were wrong, and, and from that we can springboard out into whatever we're going to believe. Uh, because we have that right, you've given us minds, you want us to seek you with our hearts and minds and, and all we have, and so we're doing that. And, and we believe different things, but we just pray your spirit will work on us and reveal to us the places we're right, the places that we are in error. Not that it's a deal breaker, Lord, because we know you saved us by sending your son who did the work, who lived it perfectly, nailed the covenants of the old law to the cross, died for us, and that we look to him in faith and we are saved. So don't let this be a division and and create division among our brothers or sisters or family or friends or become arguments. We can die to all that. But if you are willing, Lord, open our eyes. We pray for Leah and her knee surgery. We pray for Fred quadruple bypass surgery. Dean is addiction issues and Jarvis is cancer. Pray for Judy, her liver and kidneys. Her family will receive comfort as she heals. We pray for Parker and Carrie getting married in a week. And uh, just lift up everybody else who's in need, Lord, who isn't mentioned here, but are on our hearts, that you will remember them. And most importantly, Lord, we pray you'll make yourself known to people in their lives that they will see and recognize, understand your hand in their existence and um, and then grow in faith. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. amen. Amen.